0: visit the AllInGospel.com website. We go right into chapter 7 which continues straight from the burnt offering and the sin offering and the burnt offering gift offering and goes right into the trespass offering and it gets even better. Likewise, this is the law, the Torah of the trespass offering. It is most holy. So pay attention, priests. Pay attention, people in the ministry. Uh, This is how you're going to deal with trespasses. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, the altar of atonement, they shall kill the trespass offering. Same place. And it's the blood he shall sprinkle all around on the altar. And he shall offer from... It all its fat, and the fat tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys, and the fat that's on them by the flanks, the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove, which means there's a sorting process that happens here. right? And the priest shall burn them on the altar as an offering made by fire to the Lord. You're going to pull out all that stuff, you're going to give it to God. It's a trespass offering. Verse 6, every male among the priests may eat it. He shall eat it in a holy place. It is most holy. Right? The trespass offering is like the sin offering. There is one law for both of them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers anyone's burnt offering, the priest shall have that for himself, the skin of the burnt offering which he's offered. So this is kind of how the ministry is going to get, get paid. And they're going, to, they're going to depend on people coming into the temple to take care of their, their atonement, and their sin, their trespass. And there's going to be portions of that that they take. The grain offering, verse 9. Also, every grain offering that is baked in the oven and all that's prepared in the covered pan or in a pan shall be the priest who offers it. Every grain offering, whether mixed with oil or dry, shall belong to all the sons of Aaron to one as much as the other. Remember in chapter six, we saw that the priests too are going to give a grain offering and that gets burnt up. But when people come in and they bring these things, uh, you're going to live off your people in, in, in a sense. And, and even today, pastors live off tithe money that the church allots to them. And the, that's, a, that's a holy thing. That's a special thing. It happens in a holy place. The same surgical separation process where you go to the innermost parts of that sacrifice and pull the bad out from the good and separate it out, uh, that process is happening for priests too, and and all of these are for the priests. Really, priests are human too. They trespass, they sin, they have to deal with things. So um, they're going to do that. They're going to splash and sprinkle it all around. Again, that word in the Hebrew is to splash. Uh, when you take this offering, there's a lot of blood involved here. You're going to put it all around that altar in God's place. You're going to give that that life force is going to be given to God, right? Uh, the fat provides fuel. So when you put that on the altar, I don't know if you have barbecued and put in a, lot, a big fatty steak on the barbecue, boy when that stuff drips down into the fire, it flames up. Makes a big uh, a big scene. So the sin, the trespass that gets pulled out of these animals when they put it on the altar, it's going to fuel that fire. It's going to flare up God's wrath when he sees the sin. It's going to happen in a holy place, right? Trespasses, sin, they're going to happen they're going to get dealt with. Um, and they're only going to get dealt with here in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the church. The priest who makes, uh, the priest who does the work gets to the benefit from it. So there's Aaron's sons are going to serve as musicians. They're going to serve all over the temple. Uh, There's going to be women that pray outside the tabernacle door and all of those, but in this case... Um, this is a benefit for those who are doing work at the altar, which is the butcher's work. And, and it's going to be hard, physically exhausting. Uh, they take shifts in doing it because they're doing it day and night. Uh, so when you take that shift, there's a little benefit for you and your family and that you're going to get that leather uh, and you're going to, and the leathers are valuable. They're good for tent making, cloth making. Uh, they serve as uh, a water flat, water pouch, uh, baskets and, and pouches and So they're a commodity in the ancient world and and of high value. So you're doing that work, you get that shift at the temple, you're going to benefit from that as a priest. Here's the question. If in the New Covenant we give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, we give our lives to God, we give everything to God, the question of who owns our flesh, who owns our skin... Who owns the the good parts of us that are left after the trespass and the fat, and that's been surgically removed out of our life? Who owns us? And the law here, again, is the priest who does the work of the sacrifice, takes away the fat and the sin, gets to keep or owns the property of that sacrifice afterwards. So if we're the living sacrifice, who's the priest that did that work? Who took away our sin? Who does this for all of mankind, and to what degree under this law, that person, that being, that Jesus that took away our sin owns us. By law, we're his property. So when Paul says, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ, you can see how relevant that is. He's meaning literally under the law, I've been saved from my trespasses and my sin, by Jesus, he owns me. I'm his bondservant. I'm his living sacrifice. So we loop back to the grain offering. Who owns the, 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 when people give a portion of their life to God, who's the priest that takes and owns that? And when we tithe to the Lord, the Lord owns us, right? He gets to be, that's an eternal law. It's a holy thing that happens. The grain is not the life of the blood of the meat offering, but it's the fruit of our labors and it represents our work. Who owns our work when we become a child of God? Those things get shared amongst the whole priesthood. The whole congregation benefits from our work, our grain offering, but God benefits from our trespass offering. He gets that part of us, not our work, but our heart, the more important part, right? So where grain offerings are shared amongst the priesthood, these are owned by the particular priest that did the work. Biblically, Priests are those who serve, and they're fed by the hand of their people. Pastors are no different. They are, they work, and they serve, and they are fed by the hand of their people. But God is their sacrifice, and again, Jesus serves as doing the priesthood work on this. He is our priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's the one that owns us. Then we get to the peace offering. Notice that peace, instead of being third in order, as it is in chapter 3, here it's the fifth one in the order. Um, that's an interesting thought because peace is kind of Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving dinner. It's this grand feast, uh, and it happens for the priesthood. And, w- and if the, the audience is the priesthood, it happens last, right? First, you do the work. First, there's a burnt offering. There's atonement work that you've got to bring people into the kingdom, atonement. There's a gift offering. People have to grow in their faith and learn how to give back to God in that gift offering. There's the sin and the trespass offering. You've got to help people work with their sin. But boy, when that happens, what a blessing. Working in the ministry, you work people through those first four. Now you've got more people that can fellowship with a living God with you. And the benefit of being a pastor is years and years and years of work, seeing and having brothers and sisters in Christ that you can go through life with. That painstaking work of helping people deal with their sin and trespass You've got this blessing. That's why it's so hard in a healthy church when people have to move or leave is because you lose a brother or sister. You lose a family member. And for the priesthood, that just is a heartbreaker because you've poured so much into these people's lives, right? And you want to see that happen. So in general, God is merciful and just to forgive. Now the priests can have peace and a peace offering happens. Romans 5 uh, verses 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom? Also, we have access by faith into grace, which we stand and rejoice in the hope and glory of God. After the work has been done, we have peace with God. That's the benefit. And for the priesthood, peace offering comes last, right? The other thing is, I think, and just a side point, and this is me, I I don't see that there's biblical backup for what I'm about to say, but I like the idea, just as a thought, If you're serving in the priesthood and you've committed your whole life to that work and you've still got sin and trespass in your life, you don't get peace with God. (laughs) So you Mm -hmm. might as well be a non believer because you can sin and not be tortured with guilt, right? How many people do you know that are in sin and they're not serving the Lord? They don't sit and have guilt about what they're doing, they don't feel this deep remorse about most of the things they do. But boy, when you've said, I'm going to serve you, Lord you feel guilt about the most ridiculous things. And you think, oh my goodness. I was just, a lot of times I'll just watch a TV show before I go to sleep because it takes my mind off of anything that might keep me awake and helps me to just go to sleep. I'm laying there one night and I think to myself, there's nothing on this TV show that's adding anything to my life and it doesn't make me more happy. I'm using it as a crutch, as a tool to kind of habitually get myself to sleep, but I just felt so convicted. Not because it was a sin, in the order of breaking the Ten Commandments, but because the Lord was convicting me. just saying, look, Sean, this is one area of life that's not mine. You want to give it up? And then you feel this guilt, and you don't have peace with God until you deal with that thing that God's trying to coach and change and work with you on. So if he owns your hide, then sometimes he's going to make you restless, and the peace will not be given to those that are in the kingdom until they find their way to get that peace with God, to just be thankful for what God's given, to clear those things out of your life that aren't there, right? So God works with his people. He disciplines his children. He will make it so you can't find peace until you continue to grow and take that next step. And what a blessing. Praise God that he does, because everything he does, he does is good and righteous and just. And he doesn't have plans for us that are bad. His plans for us are good, right? um verse 12 well this is the law of the peace and sacrifice of the peace offerings which he shall offer to the lord so we've moved on to peace if he offers it for a thanksgiving then he shall offer with the thanksgiving the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mixed with oil unleavened wafers anointed with oil or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil so there might be a little leaven mixed in there when you've dealt with the sin and the trespass and whatnot all kinds of bread. The whole bakery worth of bread is part of what, you, there's just peace now, and God has some forgiveness in that third type. There might be blended flour mixed with oil, so there might be some some leaven in there and whatnot, and the Lord is going to have some grace on some of those things. Besides the cakes, as his offering, you shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. And from it he shall offer one cake from each offering as a heave offering to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. So a, a heave offering is offered to the Lord, but then the Lord gives it back, and that's where it says you can. it, it belongs to the priest. You're not going to burn it in a fire. You're going to give it to the Lord. The Lord's going to get it back. You're going to get to eat the cake. So you're going you're to have your relationship with God, and you're going to get the cake too. What a blessing. When you have peace with God, God is generous. He is blessing. He overlooks some of the leaven that might be mixed in with things, right? Chapter three the offering comes from the herd or the flock. For the priests, notice we largely have a bakery, right? There isn't a a herd or a flock offering for the peace offering here, in part because the people bring in the meat and the priests are going to bring all the cakes and the oils and the breads and the crackers and they're going to bring all the bread. Put them together. You've got a Thanksgiving dinner with little, you know, Thanksgiving sandwiches, right? Meat, bread, we're good to go. Expressed as Thanksgiving in verse 12. In verse 16, it's going to get expressed as a vow offering, right? And in verse 16, notice that there's also a piece there where it's offered as a voluntary offering. With a peace offering, priests had to identify which type was being given, right? So and a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving here in verse 12 is is reflected in Psalm 116, verse 16, to you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's a kind or a sub-kind of offering that fits under the header of peace offering. And under peace offering, there's thanksgiving offerings, vow and thanks offerings, and voluntary offerings. A vow offering has to do with a prayer uh, or a vow that has been made that's, that's offered. Often in the Bible, we see we shouldn't be making vows because we shouldn't be promising things we can't keep. But there are times where you pray to the Lord, and I think this is very human, where you say, God, if you do this, I'll do this. And that can get us into trouble, and it does in places in the Bible. And there's places where the, there's also a form where, boy, if you make that vow, you should go then bring that offering to the temple. And for priests, when they are constantly in prayer for their people and say, save us from the Assyrians, and he does, then that vow or thanks offering should happen. And and here's how to do that, right? So we see the verse 15, the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it's offered. He shall not leave it till morning. But, But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow or a voluntary offering, and that's where we get the distinction, it shall be eaten the same day. Verse 12 has these baked cakes. Um, you know, I can't pass food and, and not talk about it a little bit. I wonder if the priests of, of rabbinical uh, priesthood, if the, the, the quality of baking got better year after year after year. Because I imagine little old ladies that have this wonderful family recipe would come into the priests and give it to them so they could bake even better bread, right? This... Leavened bread that shows up is something that people get get confounded by. I don't have a huge problem with it, right? Because what we're getting ready for here is a big feast. And have you ever had leavened uh, rolls at your Thanksgiving dinner? Yeah. And as Christians, we don't have huge issues with that. The substitution sacrifice, the atonement sacrifice, it's already done. The sin and trespasses have already been dealt with, right? So what's left here when we have this meal is a good meal. And the peace offering is about that Thanksgiving meal that priests share with God and priests share with the congregation and the congregation shares with the priests and the, and the, and the Lord and everyone's eating together in a feast that's just amazing, right? So this leavened bread uh, that's being used um, not by the holy altar. God makes use of these imperfect breads and they've been atoned for. Uh, this gets used on the day of Pentecost. One of each goes to the priest. And in verse fourteen, there's a special mention of a heave offering here. Uh, and you see these ties that happen that'll come up. And when we get to Pentecost, we'll t- we'll come back to these offerings and point that out. But go read ahead right now and see if you can start to make the connections. But these ideas that these 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 offerings are done, that there's something sealed at Pentecost is a powerful part of that chapter, right? So go and read that and check that out. Ties of uh, this bloodless grain offering are tied in here too. Uh, it's a substitutionary atonement sacrifice. It all goes together, right? And there's nothing about this in chapter three. It's from the priesthood perspective that you see all these things connecting. It's not just the blood offering, it's also a grain offering that gets connected here. It allows for celebration after forgiveness. There's this emphasis on the substitutionary aspect. God's greater requirements here are for the priests. They have a role to play in this Thanksgiving feast. And now that everything's God's, chapter three, then this is what you as priests are going to do to set the table for the people, right? God sets the table, not the people by themselves and not the priests by themselves. When you bring them together in communion, then the flesh belongs to God and he's going to give that back to the people and the cakes belong to God. There's this heave offering, they come back to the people. God overlooks some of the leaven because at this point it's about peace with God and celebration. And atonement's been made, sin and trespass is taken care of. We all have peace with God. And we have this through faith that God has grace, Romans 5, right? We have peace with God because we believe what he says. We believe the rules that he has set up here for this feast to happen, that if all these rules that he's giving to Moses are true, then we can have peace with God. So you can't have this feast unless you believe that God is speaking to Moses. Later on, you don't get this peace with God unless you believe that Jesus is what he said he was. He said he was God. So unless that's true, there's no peace with God because you're defying what God has said. And the same is true here. If you don't do these offerings the way God has said to, then you have not trusted in God's word. And as it is today, if you do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you do not believe God's word is true. You don't believe it's God's word. So how do you have peace with God? Which creates a conundrum of the ages. How do we have peace with God if we don't believe God's word is true or we believe some other word written by humans is true? Either way, there's going to be this anxiousness that it's not quite there. There's going to be this... Something doesn't sit right and it's going to endure with people for decades until they come and they understand that God loves them. God's given the sacrifice for them, right? There's blood and there's bread and they come together and they're mixed. There's flesh and there's this thing. There's the blood of life and the bread of life. You put them together and you get a great Thanksgiving sandwich, right? God extends the elements of communion, the bread and the blood, and he gives it to the people in this feast. Man, if you don't see the connection to Jesus here, you're missing it. Jesus said to them John 6:35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Here is my blood, he tells the disciples at the last supper, here's my blood shed for you. And he gives them the bread and he says, this is my body, broken for you. So here we have these two elements of communion coming together. The people bring the 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 uh the blood the, and the the priesthood brings the body and they are going to do that. And God makes a table. Psalms 23, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. They can be in the middle of this area with enemies all around them, but man, they're going to have a peace offering feast and a festival. They're going to do it with the Assyrians to their north, the Babylonians to their east, the Philistines to their west, the Egyptians to their south, and they're going to have a feast. Can you do that? Can you celebrate and give thanks to God even when everything looks like the world is pressing in on you? When the enemies are all around you, does God prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies? If you're unsure about that question, go to church. Find and build that faithfulness there. Draw close to God and see that, yes, even in the presence of your enemies, even in the presence of everything this world throws at you, you can have peace because God sets the table. You don't set it. The priests by themselves don't set it. You know, The pastor doesn't do it for you. The congregation doesn't set the table all by themselves. Just having Christian friends doesn't do it for you. But you put it all together and something amazing happens. Something holy. Oh, no, no. Something most holy happens. And there's communion and peace. (laughs) It's just amazing how this all kind of fits. Verse 15. The flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering for Thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it's offered. He shall not leave any of it till morning. Priests, this is a one-day event thanksgiving but what about the leftovers verse 16 if the sacrifice is an offering of a vow or a voluntary offering you can eat it the same day that he offers a sacrifice but on the next day the remainder of it can be eaten too this is key and i'll we'll come back to it here but i'll read the rest of this section the remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice must be burned the third day must be burned with fire the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day must be burned with fire. And if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten at all on the third day, it is not accepted. You don't have peace with me, nor shall it be imputed to him. Right? Imputed. Wait a second. That that means everything's right. Like I'm not. If we're if we're going to talk about imputing, we're talking about our sacrifice, our atonement, uh, the the punishment for sin being imputed to that sacrifice. So if that's not working either, something's broken, it shall be, if you didn't get the not accepted and not imputed, it shall be an abomination to him who offers it. You become the enemy of God if you go on the third day eating your Thanksgiving leftovers. The person who eats it shall bear guilt. That's serious business. Why? Why is there a rule here for the priests and the people of eating a feast that they got to eat it on a certain day? Well, and this has to do with fellowship. This is a big thing. So there's three days that are talked about here. Day one, there's the flesh. That's the meat or the life getting taken, right? So we're talking about living animals being taken and consumed. Something living dies. It's the day of killing. Um, and you partake in the sacrifice on that day of killing. The eaten there shall, not, shall, not, shall be eaten is a call. It's a burnt up, like qatar from burnt offering, same meaning, that, that, that it's burnt up. There's an ascending nature to God. Something goes to God on day one, right? Day two, because we're dealing with vow and, 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 and uh, voluntary offerings, we're talking about breads. These are non-flesh offerings. And a vow is a promise, and I think it's important to see the imagery here. And you think, oh, that's, that's why we have a distinct thing here is because there's a di- thing, distinct thing being said with this kind of offering. A promise is about hope. If I promise something and on day two, I'm able to continue to eat of that promise, it means I have hope that it's gonna be fulfilled. So on that day, I can still take in a vow and a promise. I can still eat and be sustained by a promise on day two. I can hold on to that. So day two is for hope. It's for a promise, right? On day three, none of this works anymore. On day three, the sacrifice is over and done. Something new starts on day three. All sacrifices are done after the third day. And in fact, if you keep pushing beyond that, if you keep doing this thing that you're doing past the third day, everything's an abomination. You're actually an enemy of God. And he's gonna reject everything else you've done because at this point, you're out of fellowship with God. On day three, everything is gone and everything raises up. Everything ascends to God on day three. Whatever's left goes up. So day three is an important day. It's a day of revelation. It's a day of change. For some, it's a promised land. And we're going to see, so far, we've studied Genesis and Exodus. We've already seen third day getting mentioned a few times. There's a pattern around third day. Third day is always a revelation or a change. Something new begins on day three. Something new is seen. God's plan is revealed on the third day. And for God's people, that's good. For people that are enemies of God, that's bad. It's an abomination. There's something bad that's gonna happen because God reveals what he's doing on the third day. Here's the new agenda. On Genesis 1, uh, 13, day three is the day the land is formed, <laughs> which is funny because on day three for Abraham, the third day after the, the, uh, the burnt offering of Isaac didn't happen and God provided a sacrifice for that, on the third day after that, Genesis twenty two, four, Abraham sees the promised land. He sees this land that God wants him to be in. That's interesting because as that hap- as the as the generation passes, in Genesis twenty-one twenty two, it's on the third day that Laban, a kind of an enemy of God, realizes that Jacob has left him. That the person, the, the child of God is gone. He, that Laban's not going to be blessed by God anymore because that era is over. Genesis 40 20. It's on Pharaoh's birthday <laughs> that uh, we see a couple days pass. And it's on the third day after the birthday that Pharaoh sees Joseph's plan of salvation for Egypt. Genesis 42 18. On the third day, Joseph says, here's how we're going to save Egypt. God's plan is revealed. Look at this. Exodus 19:11. I like this one. The Lord promises he's going to come down from Sinai. And on the third day, he comes down from Sinai. And on the second day, on the first and second day, the people of Israel are supposed to prepare. Nine, uh, uh, chapter 19, verse 15. They're supposed to prepare for God to come back on the third day. We haven't got here yet, but coming soon there's even more references to the third day. It's this repeated use of of the third day in cleansing rituals along with a seventh day of purity. But on the third day, there's this cleansing that happens in a lot of our rituals that we're going to see here. In Joshua 9, 17, Israel sees the cities of the Holy Land on the third day. So they're coming back uh, out of wandering in the wilderness, and it's on the third day that they see the cities that will be theirs. 1 Samuel 20, verse 5, David hides himself from... uh, from Saul. And it's on the third day that he reveals himself. In 2 Samuel 1-2, Solomon has the two moms that come in arguing about the child. You know the story. They both claim the child is theirs, right? And they they, uh, argue about it and they fight about it. Uh, And it's on the third day that they fight about who gets to own the child, right? And Solomon reveals to them the truth that here's what's going to happen, right? And that's good for one of the mothers. And it's a blessing for the other mother because they get their child back. 2 Kings 20, verse 5. They're going into the house of the Lord and Hezekiah sees that they have not been following the law as he discovers the law on the third day. It's on the third day that Esther puts on, in Esther 5.1, she puts on her royal robes and she goes into the king to save the Israelites, to reveal to the king what's going on, Right? Hosea 6:2. On day one, the Messiah is going to get stricken. On day two, we're going to be revived with hope in, in what's coming on. And on day three, and I'm just going to read right from Hosea 6:2 here. On the third day, he will raise us up that we might live in his sight. The plan's going to be revealed from the Messiah on the third day. Hosea 6:2. How amazing! Day one is for killing. Day two is for hope. And it's all finished on the third day. Literally. That's the Messiah's plan, and we know it in Hosea hundreds of years before Jesus is even born. There's 12 references to the third day in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is a big deal. The third day is an important day to these Hebrew writers, right? Because they know every reference I've just cited to you. They grew up studying these things. They know third day is a revelation, and when Jesus resurrects on the third day, boy, they want to brag about it. This is the new plan. This is the new Holy Land. This is God's plan revealed. This is the Messiah proving himself as an eternal sacrifice for our sins. Luke even mentions day one and two. In Luke chapter 13, he says to them, this is Jesus talking, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out and perform cures today and tomorrow, day one and two. And on the third day, I shall be perfected. John's only use of third day is in reference to a wedding feast. (laughs) (coughs) Excuse me. When Paul talks about faith, he's defining Christianity in a few seconds. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Third day is part of his description of what our faith is, right? He puts it in there because he's writing to uh, Hebrews and Greeks that understand the relevance, the symbolism of the third day. And the fact that Jesus rose on the third day is part of his proof, part of his litany of faith, right? For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He he did exactly what Hosea said was gonna happen. He did exactly what Isaiah 53 said was gonna happen. He did what all the prophets predicted. Verse four, and that he was buried and that he rose the third day according to the scriptures it was very important that Jesus was consumed or killed on the first day. We had the promise of his return on day two. And on the third day, he rose again, the eternal replacement for symbolic sacrifices. God's new plan revealed to the world. Okay. I know that's a tangent, right? But this is a big deal. Verses 15 through 18, this is what they're saying, right? Day one is a day for killing. Day two, you can still eat the vow or the voluntary offering, right? You can still live on the promises. It's not as good a feast. It's a terrible time for Peter, right? He denies Jesus. But on the third day, everything is God's. Don't take anything for yourself on that day. It's all done on the third day. All the symbolism of the, pre, of, of the sacrifices, all the ministry of the priesthood, it's all done on the third day. If you continue that priesthood, if you continue eating that, on the third day, you're actually an enemy of God. Because when Jesus is revealed, either you serve Jesus or you don't. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And any of the one that comes by him might be saved. The contrary part is anyone who doesn't come by him will not be saved. So as God loves the priests, he's telling them, don't eat on the third day. When my plan is revealed, follow it. Thousands of Jewish people became Christians within weeks after the resurrection. Within months, even more. Within years, Gentiles were becoming saved. Why? Because Jesus rose on the third day. The third day brings it all together and unites it. It brings the flesh and the blood into one sacrifice. No one is corrupted. Acts 13, 37. But he whom God has raised saw no corruption. There can be leaven and God will handle it. Because Jesus became that path. He's the body and he's the blood. And he brought it all together and he provides a path to, to God. Anything else is a corruption. Any revelation on golden tablets, it's a corruption. Sorry, right? It's done with Jesus. The plan is revealed in Jesus on the third day. Any new revelation that is given in some private room and written down in a new book 700 years later that creates an army of people trying to bring peace to the world in the name of a God that's not Yahweh, that's corruption. That's humans trying to perfect or add to what God's done. That's dangerous, and that's going to, in the next chapter, that's going to get revealed. Don't do that. Don't add to this plan that God has. Don't take away from it. But don't keep going after it's done, right? Verse 19. This is interesting. The flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. And as for the clean flesh, all who are clean can eat it. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord... While he is unclean, that person shall be cut off from his people. This is an important point. Moreover, the person who touches any unclean thing, such as human uncleanness, an unclean animal, or any abominable unclean thing, and who eats the flesh of the sacrifice and the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. So first of all, at, at a base level, God's telling the priesthood through Moses, don't do Egyptian religion right? Don't do the nasty, weird stuff that they do and bring it into this tabernacle, right? Just don't mess with it. You do it, we don't even want you to be part of the people, right? Don't add to what we're doing. Now, two of Aaron's sons are going to get cut down, and the word cut off here, that sounds like a harsh word. It's even harsher, I think, in the Hebrew. Karath means not only to cut someone down, it means to destroy them. By implication, eliminate them, right? So cut off from his people is like, getting exiled, but it's more than that. It can actually mean getting killed, being cut down uh, by the sword, right? How careful is God here to make sure that the image of what he wants isn't misrepresented? And right away, the very first church service, two of Aaron's sons try to add to what God's done here. They become unbominable and God keeps his promise. He cuts them down right in front of everyone, right? How must have of Aaron felt when he saw two of his sons get killed, right? Immediately after that, Aaron and another two of his sons don't partake of the meal, and and Moses gets upset and he's like, "Why didn't you partake of the meal?" And we'll get to this next next week. Um, But verse twenty: the person who eats the flesh and sacrifices the peace offering that belongs to the Lord while he's unclean, that person gets cut off. Aaron and his his third and fourth son are actually obeying this. Don't pretend hypocritically that you're doing your role as a minister or priest. While you are in sin and unclean, and while Aaron and his two other sons are sad and upset about the first two getting killed, he basically says, "Look, while we're in mourning over my other two sons, I'm not going to eat this offering because that makes it even worse." And Aaron kind of corrects Moses, and Moses goes, "I get it," and he has peace with it, and he lets that happen. Because here in verse 20, Aaron has listened and is saying, "Okay, my heart isn't clean right now. I can't be. I can't partake of this meal." So. He tells Moses, look, I'm not eating because I'm doing what you said, right? How careful is God to point this out? If you're in sin, eating this meal is not the salvation. The ritual is not what saves you. The heart is what God cares about, and God can see if you're unclean or not, right? Only the proper way of doing it, only a good heart with God, we'll have ministry that God accepts and and, 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 and honors. Verse 18, there's only one way to do it. It's orderly. It's loving. It's not drunk. It's not a big festival like the Egyptians, right? It's not a big party like that. It's this orderly, loving relationship with God done with a sober mind and a sober spirit. Ministry out of love. As people get more like God, we grow intolerant of sin in our own life we just can't have it be part of the leadership team. People may act holy, but they don't do it out of the law. They don't do it out of guilt. They don't do it out of culture. When good people are holy, they do it because God wants them to be holy. Why are we holy? Because God's holy. Think of it this way. It's not that the rules here are harsh. It's that we do it because we love the Lord, right? We don't change for our husbands and wives because we have rules that as a married couple, we've established a set of rules. Or we feel guilty about things or because of expectations. We change our personal behaviors and habits because we love the person we married. We want a good relationship with them. Same is true with God. You do what God says to do. I put the toilet seat down in the bathroom because it makes my wife happy. right? And I want to be on good terms with her. I remember with seatbelts, they had were the, passing the seatbelt law. And I was so irritated because I'm thinking, what business does a government have inside my car? And whether or not I want to be safe, this sounds really harsh, but if I want to be unsafe, isn't that my right and isn't that my freedom, right? I have a right to not be killed by my government, a right to life, but I don't have a right for the government to make me live the way they want me to do. So there, there's a libertarian streak that goes through me and I really resisted the seatbelt law. They passed this rule that I'm supposed to feel guilty about or meet expectations, and so I refuse to wear a seatbelt. And I thought if I get pulled over for it, I will pay the fine. But it's my right to be unsafe if I so choose. I'm not hurting anyone else by not wearing my seatbelt. And we can argue politics on that if you want to. But here's the reality, I've changed my mind. Because my kids got old enough to realize I was being a hypocrite because I was telling my kids to buckle up. So we were in the car getting ready to go, and before I put it in gear, I said, are you guys buckled up? and they said, how come you're not buckled up? It only took a few seconds. Thought about it for a couple seconds, and I looked at the, the doughy eyes of my two children in the back seat, and I said, oops, I forgot. And I pulled my seatbelt, and I buckled it up. I didn't do it because there was a law. I did it because I love my kids, and I want my kids to be safe. So I modeled it for them. What difference does it make? And a lot of times with rules in the Bible, these regulations that are so, which seem harsh to cut someone off from their people because they don't follow a rule, that's not the point. The point is God's going to cut you off if you defy him and you bring unclean things into his ceremonies and into the practices. You bring your sin into the church. You're not welcome, right? Church is a place of fellowship. You don't have to come to church. If you've got a bunch of sin in your life, why would you want to be in church, right? What's the benefit for you? It might be the free lunch. That's great. But if you really want to be part of those ceremonies, part of that sacrifice, do it with joy. Do it in joy. And do it the way God's told you to do it. Right? If I want to be loving my children, sometimes I need to model for them the behaviors that I want them to have. And I've worn my seatbelt ever since. Even now that they're adults, I didn't go back to defying the rule. I just thought, what pride, what arrogance to think that. You know? But I don't do it because the government said to do it. I do it because it's the right thing to do when we love people, that brings boundaries to the relationship. If I love you, then I'm going to speak truth to you. I'm not going to deceive you. If I love you, I'm going to commit parts of my life to you. I'm going to sacrifice those things to you. If I love someone, I'm going to be talking to them. I'm going to be in re- I don't go years and months without talking to them. If I love the Lord, all the same things are true. If I love the Lord, that brings boundaries. I'm not going to betray my God. I'm not going to worship false idols. I'm not going to live outside of his law because it's not going to help my relationship with God. I'm going to do the right things, not out of because they're rules. I'm going to do it because I love my king. And God meets us there. It might not be perfect. There might still be some leaven and some of the bread. There might be some things that are they are goofed up here. But boy, when we come to the Lord and we've atoned for our sins and we've been made clean with a sin and trespass offering, there is peace waiting for us there is a proper sacrifice of joy, a living sacrifice of our lives. And God has done the atonement sacrifice through Jesus eternally. God meets us. And at that point, hallelujah, what an amazing, beautiful thing. And here's the point of night, these last couple of verses. Don't corrupt that. Don't mess with that process. What a horrible thing to do. So to represent that love, these are instructions for the priests. As a pastor or a leader in the church, sometimes we have to help people deal with their sin. That's hard work. But God's got a special promise for those folks. Don't mix that with anything unclean in the process, and you've got this wonderful promise. 1 John 1, verse 5, this is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you. So this is this is ministers of the gospel, they're declaring the gospel to people, that God is light and in him there is no darkness. So if we say we have fellowship or peace with God and we walk in darkness, we are liars and we don't practice the truth. Why would we do things of darkness when we're pretending to be ministers of God? We call ourselves believers and Christians and followers of Jesus, but we're still sinning. We still watch sin on TV. We still partake in sin in our music. We still pay money into industries that promote sin. Why would we do that? We're lying to ourselves. We don't practice truth. We're not set apart, sanctified and holy when we do that. If this is convicting, good, right? It should be. Because the Bible makes no makes no part or parcel for sin to be mixed with the work of the ministry, right? It should be cut off. When this happens, you you can be in your faith spiritually. You mix this stuff, you'll be killed. God will cast you out, spit you out. There's nothing worse than lukewarm. Be cold or hot. Be a sinner or be a saint. Pick. Make a choice. Don't try to do both. Because you'll get the worst of both worlds. You'll get all the guilt for the sin and none of the joy of the fellowship with God. Don't do it. John, first John. Chapter 1 continues, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, with fellowship with God, fellowship with the other saints, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. We're covered. Even that little bit of leaven that was part of the feast, God's got it. God knows. He's smart, He knows how to judge. It's not a legalistic thing where you have to have all sin out of your life, right? God cleanses us from that sin because the point is walking in the light as much as our human frames can do it. So then the chapter goes back to addressing the whole nation. Verse 22, Lord spoke to Moses, new section saying, speak to the children of Israel. So we're not talking to priests anymore. We're talking to the whole nation of Israel and say, you shall not eat any fat of ox or sheep or goat And the fat of an animal that dies naturally and the fat of what is torn by wild beasts may be used in any other way. You can still make leather out of it, but don't eat it. Okay, don't eat roadkill. I just think this is great. Uh, You would think that you wouldn't have to say that, but you don't have to say that in our culture because largely we're Judeo-Christian and we don't eat roadkill. But you can imagine back in ancient times, hey, there's a dead deer on the side of the road. Just cook it up and the flies will go away and You can eat that stuff, and people did. And diseases ran rampant in the ancient world. Archaeologists have seen how horrible tapeworm and some of these dysentery problems, because they were eating this stuff. Jewish people, starting right now, starting in verse 22 through 24, you don't do that. We're not going to chase off the wolves and eat what they were chewing on, because they might be rabid, and they put their little rabid virus diseases in the animal that they're eating. So, boy, you don't eat that stuff. Fats are places where a ton of diseases reside. So you pull those fats out of the animal and and you don't have to worry about that anymore. So the Jewish people uh, are going to proliferate without certain diseases as part of their nation because they follow this rule. Verse 25, whoever eats the fat of the animal from which men uh, uh, made an offering by fire to the Lord, the person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. So fats are bad even if it's part of a ceremony. Moreover, you shall not eat any blood in any of your dwellings, whether bird or beast. You're not blood drinkers. And in the ancient world, drinking blood was often associated with rituals, even little rituals in your home. You drink the blood, you soak in the life of the animal. Even today we have pagan uh, religions that are getting more invested in this kind of thing. The fascination with vampirism in our, in our fantasy uh, uh, entertainment industry right now is all about drinking blood. And it's nasty, and it's gross, and it's not part of holiness, right? And that's probably why it makes it so risque to put it in entertainment. Verse 25, whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. You are exiled. You don't get to do that stuff. Chapter 3 ends with the fat belonging to the Lord. It's repeated in chapter 17. There's a prohibition on that. You're going to burn fat and get rid of it. This will set Israel apart through all of history. It's set apart even today today. Uh, there, are very, uh, um, there are hundreds of religions in the world, uh, and this uh, separates Judaism and Christianity and, and some other religions from uh, the vast majority of kind of where this blood drinking is part of what the ceremonial work is. It's also a major health benefit, and I've talked about that. It's going to increase their lifespans, decrease their mortality. It's all good. Verse 20, 28, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, he who offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. His own hands shall bring the offerings made by fire to the Lord. The fat with the breast he shall bring, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. Here's the deal. People of Israel, people of the king, people of Jesus, we don't do the weird stuff, verses 20 through 27. None of that makes God happy. We don't need to do any of that. None of it makes it more powerful. It's just human uh, nastiness, trying to add something to religious practice. But here we go in verse 28 through 30. You want to come, give sacrifice to the Lord. You want to do things for the Lord. You don't get to pay someone to do it for you. You don't get to send someone to do it for you. If you want to connect with the Lord, you got to do it yourself. There's no substitute. Teenagers, read these verses carefully. You, if you want to make an offering and your parents come to church and they give a peace offering and they have peace with the Lord, that doesn't mean you have peace with the Lord, right? A lot of parents don't want to hear this. But boy, when you come of age, right? You, you start getting old enough to even understand what I'm saying up here on this. Uh, it, it, when I talk right now and, and I teach the word, you are You understand this stuff. You understand what I'm saying. You're of age. Your faith has to be yours, not your parents, Right? And I'm not telling all kids to not go to church with their parents. You live in somebody's roof, I I believe you you go to church with them. But your relationship with God is not your parents. It has to be your own hands, verse 30, that make these offerings. Sacrifice of praise, the fruit of your lips. You have to do that on your own, right? The grace that you give and the works that you do have to be yours, not your parents. If you want that joy and that that, that eternal peace, you can't rely on other people to do it offering, the offerings are symbolic, right? But they're important. And a wave offering is kind of this back and forth that happens. You give it to God, you hold it out in front of you, and then you you bring it back. Verse 31, and the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his sons. Also the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from your sacrifice of your peace offerings, right? So there's a symbolic vertical motion Uh, with a heave offering, you hold it up above your head and give it to God, and then you bring it back down, and it's for your use. God gives it back to you, right? So a wave offering is a horizontal offering, and a heave offering is a vertical offering, right? Going one direction, then the other. He among his sons, verse 33, of Aaron, who offers the blood of the peace offering, offering the fat, shall have the right thigh for his part. And for the breast of the wave offering, and the thigh of the heave offering, I have taken from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, and I've given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons from the children of Israel by a statute forever. So you tell the people that the priests are going to make their living off of these sacrifices, right? So the priests know that, the people know that, everybody's on the same page, right? I think it's interesting in verse 34 that the wave offering and the heave offering are mentioned in the same sentence. So you have a horizontal and a vertical for the priests and that's going to be the sacrifices of their peace offerings that he's given to the priesthood. What he's going to give to the people and the priests, you know, symbolically, I don't know how much you want to read into it, but a wave offering and a heave offering, put them together and you have a cross, right? There's a horizontal relationship and a vertical relationship. The priests are going to holy and literally be dependent on that rule for, for, for everything they do. It's this word from God that's going to provide for them. In other words, they literally rely on the word of God to provide for their needs. 1 Corinthians 9.13 happens in the New Testament too. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat the things of the temple? Don't you don't know that our priests live off of what we offer? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings at the altar? Okay, and I, in 1 Corinthians 9, of course, that's a rhetorical question. Of course you know that, <laughs> because he's writing to, to people who would know that. Even so, the Lord's commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. We will not live by bread alone, but by the word of God, right? That's, the, that's how it works. So that's how it's going to work for the priests as a a symbol for the Jewish people that's going to bake into their culture for a couple hundred years. It all starts right in that verse, right? Verse 35, this is the consecrated portion for Aaron and his sons from the offerings made by fire to the Lord on the day when Moses presented them to minister to the Lord as priests. The Lord commanded this be given to them by the children of Israel, and on the day that he anointed them by a statute forever throughout their generations... This is the conclusion of the section. Uh, Man, It's at this point, it's just all of the offerings. There's a party. There's fellowship. Do it the way I'm asking you to do it, and you are going to be blessed amazingly. How do you get close to God? Burnt offering, gift offering, peace offering, sin offering, trespass offering. Get right with God. Do what he says. Do it the way he says to do it, and God's going to beautifully anoint you verse 37 this is the law of the burnt offering the grain offering the sin offering the trespassing the consecrations and the sacrifice of the peace offering the consecrations are going to be how what comes up in the next chapter how the priests kind of get anointed or consecrated for the ministry verse 38 which is the lord commanded moses on mount sinai on the day when he commanded the children of israel to offer their offerings to the lord in the wilderness of sinai you want a new religion you want to not be egyptians anymore this is the religion I want, says the Lord. I want a religion where you're not a bunch of drunk people running around a golden calf, fornicating and making more problems for your lives. I want worship that's orderly. I want worship where the attention doesn't go to the priests, it goes to the, the, the Lord, right? I want your worship to be beautiful and whole and without sin and without nastiness and weirdness that these other human religions have created. That's the offerings that God wants. He doesn't need the offerings, right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need any of this, but He wants them to understand what kind of relationship with God happens, and it happens when we have our sin atoned for, when we give a piece of what God's blessed us with back to the Lord, grain offering, when we confess our sin before the Lord and deal with it, sin offering, and in our trespasses, when we when we do things that that stomp on other people, like let us deal with those trespasses too, right? The consecrations, the way to sanctify and be part of the ministry. And then when that's all taken care of, then we have this peace offering, this Thanksgiving meal, where we joyfully fellowship with one another and with God. Man, that is it. This is the heaven God wanted for people on earth. When he resided with Adam and Eve, this is what he wanted for them. Now he makes a system by which even though sin is on the earth and it's an imperfect system for humans, this is the best they can do. Until God gives an eternal sacrifice for all of this. And then anyone can come to the Lord through through faith in Jesus Christ. This is all beautiful. You have access to a feast of God's grace, and the sacrifice is sufficient. It's not eternal, but it's sufficient for your sin. You would think, with all this sacrificial blood covering everything, it'd be a pretty grisly scene. It'd be a bloody courtyard. But that isn't the result. God's people don't see blood everywhere, they see God's grace. Look at Psalm 84. I'm going to start in verse one. How lovely is your tabernacle? It doesn't say how bloody is your tabernacle. It says how lovely, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. Ah, this is beautiful. My heart, my flesh, they cry out for a living God because whoever wrote this has felt the presence of God in their life. It's hard to tell a non-believer how amazing that is. They can see your joy and your peace. And you try to tell them how much joy and peace there is living for God, being right with God, not having the guilt in your life, right? But they don't understand it until they feel it, until they accept and come into that relationship with God. Then your heart, your flesh, everything cries out for God. If your heart and your flesh don't cry out for God, you got to question whether or not you've done all these sacrifices in your life, right? Have you come before the Lord and done these things? Do them. Try, test the Lord in these things. Because verse three, even a sparrow has found a home. Even a swallow has a nest where she may lay her young. But us humans, man, we are without a home. Nothing feels right. Nothing feels like it's like the the home we're supposed to be in. You can make millions of dollars and still feel like you haven't found what you're looking for. And then you can write songs about it, you know, like you too, right? Your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King, my God, Blessed are those who dwell in your house because they will still be praising you. Selah. And I kind of want to end on Psalm 84. These courtyards aren't about the sacrifices. They're not about the death. It's about being in God's presence. And the sacrificial area, the Mosaic priesthood, is only an era. It, 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 it's a mirror of things to come. It's an image of heaven. But what lovely, what's lovely here is the presence of God and the writer feels and knows that presence it's my god and my king not the king of moses or the king of the god of aaron it's my god my king god gets personal with his people it's the forgiveness that it all represents you know those of us that wear cross necklaces crosses aren't beautiful because they're made of gold or silver it's what the cross represents they're not an image of just bloody torture and massacre. Christians have taken that bloody place and they've sanctified it and made it holy. It's about the sacrifice Jesus gave on that cross. Your sins are gone. Your debt is paid. God welcomes you as a child. He loves you as his own. There's fellowship and peace with God because of what was sacrificed on that cross. And I think the writer of Psalm 84 feels the same way, right? It's not about the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the peace offering. It's about what all those things symbolize is obedience to God and right relationship with God. If you don't have that, ask for it. God's waiting. You know, he stands at the door and he's actually knocking. If you're hearing this right now and anything is tugging in your heart to come close to God, you just bow your head and you say, Lord, I want to follow Jesus. I want to make my life a sacrifice to you because you sacrificed yourself for me. You atoned for my sins. You come and and you offer yourself as a a sacrifice that will take the place and take the fire and the wrath that I deserve. And you're going to take it on yourself. Thank you, Lord. I accept that gift. And I want fellowship with you. Help me get the fat of sin out of my life. Help me to sort the trespasses that I've done, even the ones I'm unaware of. And help me to sort them out, Lord, and forgive me for those too. Help me to be living at peace with everyone in my life and you because all I want is to be in your courts and in your tabernacle and for my heart and my flesh to cry out for a living God because that's my home. That's where I can feel at home. And we can get a taste of that right now. Say those prayers. Be right with God. Go find a church and be in fellowship with the kingdom, right? Right? Nothing else is worth any. There's nothing in this world that can threaten or or that can come against that because even your life can be taken and God welcomes you into his courts. Start now. Don't spend a moment of your life outside of a right relationship with God. In Jesus' name, Lord, bless us and teach us and keep us and train us to follow and obey your commands. Lord, we're going to see in the next chapter how quickly humans want to add to this perfect, this this perfect, image of your kingdom it is not about what we do lord it's about what you have done it's what about what you're doing and it's about what you will do it's about your eternal sacrifice to fellowship with us to walk in the garden with us once again lord you created us you made me you cr- i didn't make myself i didn't create myself you did that you were my friend when i was still your enemy when i was in rebellion against you you gave your life for me Lord, I don't even understand love beyond what you've shown me. You are the perfect image of my sacrifice. And Lord, just help me to serve you and love you and do it the way I'm supposed to do it. Don't let me add to it. Don't let me take away from it. Let my hope be in your word so that on the third day when you rise, I can see your plan, your revelation. And I can have eyes that see and ears that hear your path for my life. Right? Lord, thank you for everything you've given. Bless every person in this room. Bless every person that's listening to this, Lord. May your anointing be upon them. May your peace be upon them. May they find you in their lives and in their relationships. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.